Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Would you please keep your Bibles open with me to Romans, Romans chapter 2, the scripture that we just heard together, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We're back in Romans, as has begun our practice just last year, and for the next few years, we expect that each February, we would turn to the letter of Romans. This morning, we turn to Romans 2. Now, if you're doing the math, that means that our entire number of months last year and during August took up Romans 1. It was quite the study together. But before we begin in earnest today to hop right into Romans chapter 2, I want us to consider where we're going as we begin in our passage this morning. Where are we going? This is going to be a difficult sermon and and really series of weeks to sit in. Uh, A number of months that we have to be together in, in which the main idea in our time is that there are none who are without sin. And there are none who are without excuse for their sin. And we're going to sit in that. That, That's what this passage has for us, and we're going to stay there. There are none who are without sin, and there are none who are without excuse for their sin. Therefore, there are none who, on their own, will escape judgment for their sin. Here's how one commentator puts it. The the theme of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 is this. Human inadequacy in light of divine standards. Human inadequacy in light of divine standards. In our gospel partnership manual, uh, uh, our manual that accompanies our our membership class here at Cross Point Coast, we use a diagram uh, that was developed by the gospel, uh, by the book Gospel Centered Life, and it describes how the Christian life is bracketed by a growing awareness of two things that we grow in awareness of the holiness of God, that the Christian life is a life in which bracketed by these two growing awarenesses, a growing awareness of the holiness of our God, and simultaneously, particularly in light of his holiness, we grow in an awareness of the depth of our sinfulness. Now, if you can see these brackets, these arrows moving out in this way, you can see there is a great chasm that is growing between us, that we see as we grow in an awareness of the holiness of God and the depth of our own sinfulness, there is a great gulf, a chasm that opens between God and man. This is what we mean by human inadequacy in light of divine standards. These brackets open up between us and God, and it leads us to one of the most serious questions we can ask. The question, 
what must I do to be saved? There is a great gulf between the holy God and me. What must I do to be saved? Is there any hope for a sinner like me in the presence of a holy God? Is there any good news? Is there any gospel for us? This is the precipice that we are brought to in our prayer of confession every week. We open a service with a call to worship, and we intentionally choose songs together that that begin with this concept of a welcome in the name of the Lord, and then we go on to confess that that Lord who has welcomed us is the great one. He is the holy one. He is the awesome one. He is the one of glory and splendor and perfection and holiness. And at some point, if you have any self-awareness, I don't care if you've been in a church all of your life or if this is your first Sunday, at some point in all of us, if we have any self-awareness, we should ask, what in the world am I doing here? It's great that he welcomed me here. But in light of what we sang about the glory and the splendor and the majesty of our God, that's not me. I'm not hearing the call to worship as good news quite yet. And so what we do is we continue in a prayer of confession. And that's what our prayer of confession is. It's a moment to say, I shouldn't be here. But he called me here, so I am here. But I have to confess, I know I have no right to stand in the presence of the holy God. So, pastor, is there any good news? And we come up, and we open the scriptures, and we search the scriptures for good news. And we preach the gospel, the good news of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing in Romans chapter 2, which is why I hope you have it open before you today, that in Romans 2, in this passage of Scripture, we're going to study together over the next few months, we will be steeped in an awareness of the holiness of God and steeped in an awareness of the uh, of the depth of our sin. And the Apostle Paul is going to bring us to the precipice by which we are confronted with the question, is there any good news for us? But the letter of Romans wasn't written first to be preached over the course of many months and perhaps even years. It was written to be read to the church in one sitting. And so before we begin, I want to at least bring us to the good news. Right, we're going to sit in Roman in Romans chapter two, but let us go quickly also to to just remember the good news, which is actually the Apostle Paul's point in the letter. I long to get to the point to where we get to Romans chapter three, verses twenty one through twenty five, and exposit the glories that we find there in light of the question: Is there any good news? Romans chapter three, verse twenty one, is the answer to that question, and I want to read it over us today. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a recap. It's where we just came from. It's a recap of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter uh, 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are, and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Who, Jesus, who was God, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show the righteousness of God, a propitiation by his blood. We ought every week to have the beauty of that gospel herald, heralded over us every time we gather. Romans 3 declares the righteousness of God that is manifest. In light of his righteousness, we say, all have sinned and fallen short of that great glory. There's a depth of human sins that fall short. And the glorious hope, it holds out the good news that God has filled up the chasm between the holiness of God and the reality of our sin with the propitiation by the blood of Jesus. And I know many are saying, Okay, so he filled it up with a really big word, all right? Oh, that word is sweet. Because what it means that he's, he's filled up the, the, the chasm between us. He's satisfied the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means. He has satisfied the fullness of God's just judgment between the holy, his holiness and our sinfulness. He satisfied the wrath of God by the death of Jesus in our place, in the place of sinners like you and me. That's our hope. It's the very kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Jesus died to satisfy the divine standard. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next few weeks together in Romans 2 contemplating the divine standard so that we see the greatness of the glories of the cross itself. Jesus satisfied the divine standard so that sinners like you and I would be, according to Romans 3, justified, not by our own failed attempts at righteousness, but by grace as a gift to be received with faith alone. But for us to receive with a heart of gratitude and with a heart of worship, the glories of that gospel word, that word that we're come to in Romans 3, we need the truth of God to interrupt our presumption. We still do need Romans chapter 2. We have to hear the perfection of God's justice to see the perfection of God's grace. When we turn to the flow of the argument of Romans we do so that we would grow in an understanding of the judgment or the wrath, the righteous wrath of God on sin so that we would also grow in an appreciation of his grace. Heavenly Father, I ask that that is what you would do and you would do so by your word, that you would convince us of the truth of your word this morning and that your spirit would apply that word to our life and like a seed, it would take root and bear the fruit of repentance in every one. We ask you for this great grace, because this is what you do. We hope in you for your work in the midst of the proclamation of the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. I begin by sharing where we're going. But first, before we go ahead and jump into two, and we will, we have to remember where we came from because we are starting in chapter two after all. We should probably pay attention to Romans one. We actually preached Romans one in two parts. The first part was last February. And then we went to a four-part mini-series in that second half of Romans 1 in August, over the summer. Uh, Paul preaches the gospel 
to the church. I want you to see this. Look at verse eight in chapter one. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. So he's opening with a prayer of thanksgiving because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, how would it, cool would it be if, if God would inspire by his very spirit some great apostle to write about Cross Point Coast, I thank my God for all of you because your faith, Cross Point Coast, is proclaimed in all the world. Man, we've arrived. Like, we're done. Check. <laughs> we made it. We don't have anything else to learn, right? Why read the rest of the book? I mean, our faith is proclaimed in all the world, right? How cool would that be? But verse 15 says, no, 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 no. Keep reading, Romans. Keep reading, Cross Point Coast. Verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There is a beautiful lesson for us, friends. If you think you know the gospel, I pray that that is true. I believe that you do. But friends, there is a sweetness, there is a depth and a richness, there is an ongoing awareness for us today to appreciate that propitiation, the propiti- the, the, to appreciate the, 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 real, the reality of the reconciliation, the atonement that takes place in the gospel. And so, may the Spirit of God preach the gospel to us, even if we have some level of maturity. May he preach the gospel to us. Now, what the passage continues in is it opens up the gospel. In verses 16 and 17, this gospel that he is eager to proclaim, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This good news that he preaches is the very power of God by which your sin is atoned for before the holy God. And then what he continues in, in verses 18 through the end of the chapter, and we spent four weeks in that together earlier this year, is he, he, he communicates the shared human condition. We have a, by virtue of being human and living in this creation that God has made, we have a shared human condition. The, the words in, in verse 18 say, the wrath of God is revealed. That's the shared human condition. The wrath of God has been revealed on our sin. Paul plunges headlong into an argument that he continues in chapter two, an argument for human inadequacy in light of the divine standards. So that we come to this, you have no excuse. That's the bottom line. It's, the, it's the, 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 the message for us in Romans chapter 2. I want you to look at uh, verse 1 with me. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, there's something interesting that's happened. Compare verse 1 to the verse that came just before it, verse 32 at the end of chapter 1. Verse 32 says, though they know God's righteous decree, Right? Who's it talking about? They. You know, those people. All of humanity. Though they know the righteous decree, they suppress the knowledge of God and the wrath of God is upon them. And everybody in the congregation that's hearing this letter on that day say, mm-hmm, that is true of they, right? And then we come to verse one and there's a shift. You can see it right away. Therefore, you have no excuse. 
there's a shift because he's talking not to, to just, you know, humanity of which, yes, you're human, but, you know, no, he's speaking directly to the people to whom he writes this letter and to us today. Everyone who judges, check, <laughs> you know, um, I fall into that category. And I would argue that there are at least two in the text, and for us who read it today, three categories of people to receive this passage. First of all, is the broadly Gentile, the all mankind. It's true that there are none who do not judge. It's true. Just go to any elementary school lunch line, right? I rem- I'm like, a- I remember this. I remember this not like so much as in color, as in the color of my emotions in elementary school. Some of you are in elementary school and you're joining us this morning. You know what it's like to stand there in line. Maybe it's even that community group. Come on, right? And you know what it is when that kid, that small group of kids who thinks it's okay to cut in line, right? And you rise up with, you can't cut. And I was here. What if the, all the bacon's gone? By the time I get there, and I act like it's the kids, it's me at community group. I'm like, but the kids are all in front of me, and they'll take all the bacon, right? We know this is wrong in our heart of hearts, and yet there are always those kids who do it. They don't seem to have a problem with it until, right? Until one day, one of the other kids in that group of kids who tends to cut, cuts in front of one of those kids, and what do they do? What do you think you're doing cutting in front of me? I was in line, right? But you cut last week. I know, but you cut in front of me. And I will stand in judgment over you because you did what I did last week, right? We know what it is to judge. And we know what right and wrong is when we see it in others. Every one of you who judges, it says, will be judged by God. Why? In our judgment, we are demonstrating that we know what the righteous standard is. We know what right and wrong is, even in the lunch line or at community group. As Matthew chapter 7 says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So this passage could be could be written broadly to all of humanity. Everybody knows this. Maybe it's not the lunch line for you. Maybe it's the car horn, right? Like when somebody speeds by you or cuts in front of you, you know what it is to rise up and declare your righteousness. I mean, you weren't going to hit anybody. (laughs) There was no need for the communication tool, which is the horn in my car, right? There was only a need to say, I am good, (laughs) and you're not right? We know what this is. It could be written to any of us and all of us. But this passage moves on to a stronger argument and a focused attention. It moves on explicitly to the Jew or to the biblically informed. In fact, one of the ways that we we know that it has a more focused edge to it than simply all humanity judges, so all humanity be judged by God. If you look at verse 17, it says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed by the law, if you guide others and you're a light to darkness, an instructor of foolishness and a teacher of children, having the law and 
embodiment of knowledge of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? He's making the same argument, and he's revealing that there is a more focused edge. Those who know the truth of God's divine standard according to his law, the Jew. The contrast of transition between Romans 1 and Romans 2 is this. In Romans 2, it ends, if you look at it with me, though they know the righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, what do they do? They not only do them, but they give approval. You see, the, the Romans 1 people aren't very judgy. They're very approving. But the Romans 2 people... The argument that Paul is making and the the sharper edge that he is bringing is saying, no, no, you do know, and you know that you know because you judge. The Gentiles approve of their sin in others, but those who know the law disapprove of their sin when they see it in others. You see the contrast, the religiously pious of chapter 2 Judge, or to put it another way, when they see their own sin in the lives of others, they are quick to judge. So you have this contrast, a contrast between a sort of a broad humanity that knows a righteous standard that will occasionally rise up in judgment, but generally actually kind of puts up with sin around them or even approves of it. And then you have those who know the truth of the divine standard of God and declare it in judgment when it happens to others. But I would argue that there is another group that is in this room today that was not as much in the room on that day. All those who have heard the gospel. The church of of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile in Rome and today. In this moment of history in which Romans was written, there was a hard distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. The distinction was this, that a distinction that it's going to become more and more clear in Romans. But the Lord had revealed himself to the Jewish people in a unique way through his word. They knew the Lord and they knew his standard. The Gentiles, they knew God in a general sense through creation and with a moral conscience that's common to mankind. But the Jew knew the Lord because the Lord had called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and because he'd rescued them out of Egypt and he revealed his good way to Moses in the law and because he'd spoken to them in the prophets and called them to repentance. They knew the Lord by name. The Jews had a unique knowledge of God because God had revealed himself to them. And so they developed a moral awareness that gave them an access to a a righteous frame of judgment. I want you to hear that word. I'm saying is those who know God, like the Jew with the, the, the revelation of the word, are able to have a righteous framework. So today, God's word has come to us, you see. A biblical moral framework has shaped so much of the history of our own culture. Let me suggest that though the original audience of chapter 2 were those of a Jewish heritage in the church in Rome, the audience that ought to be confronted with this passage today is the whole of the Christian church, Jew and Gentile who has received the testimony of the scriptures and yet so often rises up in sort of a self-righteous, hypocritical judgment. It's for us who know the truth, who have a moral frame. So the you in chapter two is you. 
In every way, we are among those who Paul is leaving without excuse. Now, so far, all I've attempted to do is get your attention. I want you to know Romans chapter 2 is, is, has a you in it, so pay attention. This passage isn't a mere interesting set of doctrines. It's, it's actually a severe warning directed at me today. What follows is a clever argument that's often employed by the Apostle Paul in his letters. First, what he does is he agrees with the truthfulness of some claim that's being made by those he's speaking to. He agrees with them. Hey, what you're saying is true. Not going to argue with it. In fact, I'm going to demand on you to see the truth of the truthfulness of it. And then what he does is he moves on to show that they've misapplied the statement itself in light of who God is and in light of his gospel. God's not, uh, the apostle Paul is not going to begin by arguing against them. He's going to begin by agreeing with them. What he offers to them is there is an element to which you are true and there is an element to which you are false. Jesus actually did the same thing. In Matthew 23, Jesus repeatedly calls the Pharisees blind, which is an interesting thing to call the Pharisees because let's be clear, the Pharisees knew more and practiced more of the word of God than any other group of the people of that day. And for the sake of our own humility, we have to recognize that they knew more and were far more devout than probably any of us here. And yet, these highly informed, highly devout people, Jesus calls them blind. And he says, they knew and did not know. They were true and they were false. Of the crowds who gathered around Jesus, he said in Matthew 13, 13, seeing, they do not see. In Isaiah, it picks up in that passage. It says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. This is what I mean by true and false. Let me introduce two questions. What do those in the passage in Romans chapter 2, what do those who are being addressed by Paul know? What do they know? And what do those who are being addressed by Paul not know? What do they see and what do they not see? What do they, under, what do they see and fail to perceive? This is the meat of the passage. And so I call you, pay attention here. I want you to be able to open up the scripture and see it for yourself. What do those being addressed by Paul know? This is the true statement. Look at verse two with me. We know, so he said, you in verse one, and now it's saying us, like you and me, Paul and, and all you in Rome, we together know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. True. Where the Gentile approves of the sin, the Jew has the right sense that sin ought not to be approved, but ought to be judged. That God is right in his judgment. They had an increasing awareness of the holiness of God. Do you see? That's true. What's false? They seem to think that a knowledge of God's moral framework made them special in some way. It's true what they knew, but they took from that the wrong implication that somehow they were special because of what they knew. 
will continue and you'll see the argument to come together. There's a second thing that, that was true. They knew and, and Paul agrees. They know the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. Do you suppose, O oh man, verse 3, you who judge, who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? He's not arguing that you don't know his, the riches of his kindness. Uh, you do. He agrees God is kind. He agrees that God is patient. He agrees that God forbears. Yes, there is justice of God. And yes, God is patient. He has been patient with you, hasn't he? The history of redemption is a history of God's patient forbearance. He's like a father with a child pleading with them, sending his prophets whom they killed. And even his own son whom they rejected and killed, which is surely in view here. Those who lived the history of redemption lived the drama of the riches of God's kindness, the riches of grace lavished upon us. But here is what is false. They failed to understand the intention of God's kindness. I agree he has been kind. But you have misperceived the intention of his kindness. At some point, the lavish riches of patient grace began to feel not so much like a benevolent gift of kindness, but more like a wage that was owed to a special people like us. Of course, kindness and patience will continue. We're the people of God, of course. The covenant of God's steadfast love and mercy seemed more like, less like a gift and more like a standard of living, not a gift of grace. Loving kindness and forbearance and patience are given not to be hoarded like an like unmoving spoiled child, but to be the very love that moves us. Not unmoving but moves us to repentance. There's a third statement that is true. It's implicit in here that they know, surely with a sense of defensive guilt, they know that they do the same sort of things. It runs throughout. We, we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice these things, but do you suppose that you who judge it those who practice these things and yet do them yourself? You know you do. And, and they're not, well, yeah, of course we do. No, no, they're, they're, I'm sure they're defensive. I'm sure they have various ways and various excuses and various justifications. You who judge practice such things and they know it. But here's the false reality. As much as they know this, the fact that they themselves do the same things doesn't seem to be a surprise. What is a surprise is the gravity of their own sin. Oh, yeah, we do those things. I mean, sometimes, you know, nobody's perfect. You do have Romans 1, after all, right? <laughs> right? Paul says, no, 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 no. I, I know you know. <laughs> I know it's no surprise to find out that you're hypocrites. But you don't know how serious, how grave is your hypocrisy. They know they've received loving kindness, but they, do they know that they are in real danger of the, quote, judgment of God that rightly falls on those who practice such things? I told you Romans 2 would be hard. 
because we know that we're not talking about those people. We've already established we are the you. There seems to be an idea that because there have been, that we have been made beneficiaries of the abundant riches of grace, that, that we are somehow unique in and of ourselves, some, somehow exempt from God's judgment. There, there's a, this is the essence of self-righteousness. It isn't the, 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 the pursuit of righteousness is in any way a legalistic error. There's nothing wrong with pursuing righteousness. What makes righteousness self-righteousness is the idea that we in and of ourselves are uniquely qualified as righteous beneficiaries of grace. Uniquely qualified when in reality, true and transformative righteousness originates in the grace of God himself. And it's being revealed as as Romans chapter one says, from faith for faith, because there are none who are righteous, none. Our need to justify ourselves as righteous, therefore, will produce either pretending or performing. And we know at Cross Point Coast, these are not new words to us. We will either hide and minimize our sin in a need to be shown as righteous, even though none are righteous, but kind of. And we'll try to hide and minimize, or we carve out some special category of behaviors. And we say, but as long as you do these, I mean, nobody's perfect, but in this unique category of behaviors that we've sort of unspoken, agreed on at Cross Point Coast, you're basically righteous and deserving of the gift of grace. So come on in. I go to church, I tithe, I don't participate in that sexual depravity of our day. I mean, nobody's perfect, but what we need is an increasing awareness of our own sinfulness. What we need is to sit down for a moment in the reality that we already confess that the judgment of God rightly falls on sinners. Do you see it? They know it. Paul agrees with, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. You know it. Do you perceive what that means for us? The judgment of God falls on sinners. Paul agrees with our doctrinal confession. We confess, it's me. I'm the one. And God is just to condemn me. Or as Paul says in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says, it's me. Right? I am the foremost. It's me. What this leaves for us is two ways to live. While there are many who wander about in some general knowledge of God, but are woefully inadequate in, a, in any sort of a moral framework, in their suppression of the truth, all manner of sin is approved, and there's a great ignorance of any righteousness of God, and there's a, an, an ignorance or a putting off or a setting aside of any just judgment of God, there are those. And how much do we need to go in love to these and also with moral clarity to say it is the riches of his kindness upon sinners like me and you and us and bring the riches of that kindness to you that we together would repent and believe. We fall in the same category. And now that the gospel has been preached to you, you too with me, are without excuse. 
And so we go to a world that is increasingly losing a sense of a moral framework and any knowledge of God's moral framework and any knowledge that God would judge justly for falling short of his glory. But for those of us who know the justice of God and have experienced much of his patience, the word could not be more clear. I want you to see verses four and five together. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul contrasts repentance with storing up wrath. These are your two options. Repentance, God's grace and kindness leading us to repentance or impenitence a failure of repentance and an ongoing justification of our sin and wrath. The presumption is that God's kindness will mitigate against any trouble caused by our sin, but God makes it explicit that this is a presumption that is deeply and dangerously flawed. The person was more right when they understood that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice these things. You were right back then. And it's been presumption ever since. And so, so often we continue, rather than walking in repentance, we store up wrath, rather than any mitigation of judgment based on presumption upon the riches of God's kindness. We continue to walk in the ways that are abhorrent to a holy God. The Holy Spirit is calling us here in Romans chapter two, to a life of repentance lived at the foot of the cross. It's a severe word, but there is a life of repentance that situates ourselves underneath uh, at the foot of the cross and says, God, you are the perfect one. I am not. And I will never in in myself be able to stand up and say, here I am, but I will remain at the foot of your cross. And I will say, there you are. There's my justifying atonement. There is my hope. There is my transformation. There is my grace. There is my justification. And there is my sanctification. You who have heard God's perfect holiness and the standard of his righteousness, you've heard of the lavish riches of his grace. Do not presume, stand up and walk on somewhere else. Remain, cling to grace and be transformed. Friends, I know it is a hard word. I've sat in it all week long. A difficult word. I'm I'm thinking, how do I get to preach this when I'm so under this word? I have to tell you, when I read verse five, I'm actually afraid. I mean, look at it. Verse five, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. Man, if there's one thing I do not want, I do not want to store up wrath. There are some areas of my life in which sin is persistent. It clings on. I don't want to store up wrath. And yet I agree that God's judgment is right. I have no argument. 
I think he's good if he stored up wrath against me and my sin. I'm sitting there and I'm sitting on my back porch reading this and I'm thinking, this is a severe warning. It's literally written to people like me who are biblically informed, are you? It's written to the religiously initiated like you and like me. And it's a warning against presumption. It's a right application in light of the holy God to engage with holy fear. This is good. It's severe. (laughs) And it's good. I know the righteous judgment of God. I know it. Woe is me. What must I do? What must I do? To be saved. Friends, for all of us here, God is righteous. He is just to judge. You and I are sinners, and you and I are in need of a Redeemer. For those of us who know the righteousness of God, you've you've encountered the word, you've seen his revelation, you are right when you see sin to know it and to confess it and say, that's sin. That's dangerous. That is the way of destruction, whether we see it in the culture or we see it in our own heart. That is a right response. The Apostle Paul does not mitigate against that response. But do you see that sin in yourself? And if you don't, spend a little time in the Sermon on the Mount. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is not that you end it and say, okay, now I know what I'm supposed to do. The end of the Sermon on on the Mount is, man, I don't stand a chance. There is no holiness in me that can mitigate against the error that is endemic in my soul. And then there are those who know the grace of God. For those who are right to cherish grace, a grace that he has lavished upon us. I have to go to Ephesians. I can't like read Romans 2 and the, 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 the riches of kindness and not read Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the, listen, riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable? When is he going to run out of kindness to lead me to repentance? Immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe according to the working of his, like, flex the right arm, his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him in the right hand of God in the heavenly places. That is the power at work for me that I will be saved. Not me. Not that I can save me. Not that I can justify me, but the great power of God situated underneath, taken hold of by taking hold of the grace by faith. Change me, Lord. Bring me to the completion by the great working of your grace. It's the gift of God's redeeming grace that your eyes have been enlightened. Having seen sin for what it is and having seen redemption You have in Jesus know that you have been brought into a life of repentance, situated at the foot of the cross. And I move from fear to pleading. And I move from pleading and contrition. Mark was right. Not just fear, but God, I'm not angry at what I've done. 
I'm sorrowful because of your great grace. You've been so good. Your grace has been so sure. And I'm sorry, Father. And he does what fathers do. He says, yeah, my grace is immeasurable. And I can prove it because of the Christ. And from that contrition, I look at Jesus and I say, look, that's the son given on my behalf. The father loves me. And we move from contrition to reality of the gospel, to repentance and faith and growth and thanksgiving, which is why the end of the Christian life isn't a righteous people, although we go through that by God's grace. The end of the Christian life is not a people who assert their righteousness. It's a people who assert their worship. The end of the Christian life is a people of praise. This is what heaven is filled with. Not a people who, who declare the glories of their repentance, but declare the worthiness of the Lamb. Man, it's good to be in Romans chapter 2 and to know Romans chapter 3. I hope you'll stay there, and I hope that you will walk in what God is giving us to us in the beauty of his grace in Romans. Heavenly Father, thank you for interrupting our presumption. The chances that there's anyone here who is redeemed that does not at times at least presume upon your grace. No. I pray, Lord, that your gospel kindness would continue to be preached the fullness of it, the, the height of your glory, the depth of our depravity, and the fullness, the abundant riches of your grace would be preached as a balm to that soul to bring us from the reality of our fear to the joy of repentance, grace, salvation, and worship. Lord, I pray that you would do this. This is the application of your spirit. None of this is natural to us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in every soul to apply this great, marvelous grace of Christ on every soul. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.